This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the very affable Mr. Simon Belanger. Sir, we have a full slate for the Monday release. We're talking frameworks. We're talking definitions. Everything from banking, dividends, uh, Bitcoin a little bit today, and alcohol. Wow, that is quite the gambit of topics. Alcohol, (laughs) Bitcoin, banking, and dividends. That sounds like a perfect episode for the Canadian Investor Podcast. Um, What's going on, man? um, Is it a little bit warmer in Ottawa yet? It's getting, uh, you know, I keep checking out the 14-day forecast and I get excited anytime there's a high single digit, but now there's a couple of uh, double digits in the forecast. Oh, we got some dub digits yeah, in the forecast. But we okay. still, still have a lot of snow, especially if you go um, in Gatineau Park um, on the Quebec uh, side of the river. It's just, uh, I think people can still do cross-country skiing there, uh, but that's... They, yeah. they, they never did the redoubt. Can, uh, no, they never opened it up this year. I think year. it's one, maybe the first year ever that, uh, or in a very long time that they did not open it. The weather never... Just wasn't thick enough. Yeah, we had some cold days. Like anyone, I know we have listeners in Ottawa and obviously they'll say, oh, we had cold days. But the issue is we had like four yeah. or five in a row. <laughs> Don't worry, they yeah. always have cold days. We had like four or five in a row and then we had four or five days of around like zero or slightly above zero. Oh. So that's why I never got cold enough for long enough to uh get the canal going which is too bad it's one of the the fun things to do in ottawa if you ever come in the winter i would highly recommend usually it's the second week of february there's winter lewd tons of activities for the whole family you can go on the canal um you know ottawa tourism you're welcome yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah seriously wow that is uh quite the Quite the endorsement. Let's talk about uh, first on here. Credit default swap, CDS. It's coming back, oh, right? Yeah. Like you know, it was it was the it was the hot word. Everyone who had ever watched Wolf of Wall Street, every finance bro, was ready to tell you what a credit default swap was, and so so was um, Margot Robbie in a bathtub. This isn't Margot Robbie in a bathtub, or Selena Gomez at the poker table. But it is Simon Belanger on the podcast, which is arguably better. Yeah. Big fan of Margot Robbie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is it a big fan yeah, of Margot Robbie? Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to just um, talk about credit default swaps or all, also known as CDS, because um, like you said, I've noticed like they're mentioning CDS a lot more on mainstream financial media. And I, I know for a lot of people that may be starting to invest or maybe some people that are a bit more seasoned may not be familiar with this type of financial instruments. So I just wanted to explain as simple as I can what it is. So a CDS is simply a type of financial derivative product. A financial derivative product it simply means that its value is linked to a financial asset. So, for example, if you're familiar with options on stocks, those are also financial derivatives. That's because the value of the option is linked to the value of the stock. It could be correlated or it could be uh you know, inversely correlated depending on the type of option. So that's just the basics here. 
And I wanted to give that example just because most people are somewhat aware of what options are. If you're not, we have done a couple episodes on that. So you can just go back to uh, some of our older episodes. Now, back to CDS. A CDS is a derivative that transfer the credit exposure uh, for bonds or debt. A CDS is very similar to insurance. Essentially, the buyer of the CDS pays an ongoing premium to the seller of the CDS. If there is a credit event, then the CDS seller has to pay the principal back plus any remaining interest payments to the CDS buyer. Now, a credit event is not necessarily just a default. So there's a series of events for most contracts that could trigger essentially the contract to be executed. Examples of of credit events. These are just a few examples. There's more than that, but you know, first the business or the entity, because it's not necessarily a business. The entity defaults, but it's not related to a failure in to pay. There is a default or failure to pay. There's a debt restructuring when the underlying loans are restructured, for example, or there's government intervention that affects the contract itself. So there's a series of credit events. You can definitely read up on it if you're interested. But these essentially just say that the contract is in effect and executed if there's these things that happen. So it's not necessarily just a default, but it's a credit event. So CDS... Can we we back up here? Why would I buy uh, a CDS? Like, it's kind of like chump insurance, but like, I looked at it another way. Like, you know, there's a buyer and a seller. The buyer's paying a premium to the seller. Why would I go go do such a thing? And and I guess maybe you can kind of hint that into Mm -hmm. why it's important right now again in, in... Yeah. In the discussion. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, one thing that um, especially well, institutional investors will do is they'll, for example, have bonds of a business and they'll take a CDS to hedge their risk. So if they think that uh, they have a 10 year bond, for example, and they think that in the next five years, there's a significant risk that the business will go uh, bankrupt or will default on their their bonds, they may take a CDS for that five years, thinking that if they make it through those five years, then they're good for the whole 10 year period. So that's just an example. You can also trade these instruments. So you don't necessarily to need to hold the debt. Um, so there are markets for CDS. Um, and actually, these are the markets that we're seeing some big swings with some financial institutions right now. So that's why it's so important. It's just literally a way uh, to get insurance, uh, but you don't necessarily need to hold the asset as well. You can just buy the the contract if you'd like. Exactly. Okay. So now this is important now because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah, exactly. Now it's important because, you know, all the banks and by the way, countries as well have CDS. So there are insurance uh, contracts on the banks because they have debt and countries like Canada, the US or like all the major countries that issue bonds. There are credit default swaps for that. So what we've seen is in the past, I think. I don't know the exact time period, but definitely in the past six months, the CDS for Credit Suisse had been going up for some time. So that means that there were more and more people in that market seeing, thinking that Credit Suisse uh, would default or there'd be a credit event happening. So the price of CDS was getting more and more expensive, betting that there may be this kind of event. Clearly, there was this kind of event that happened, I think it was about a week and a half ago now. 
the whole time period seems to be, <laughs> I don't know, there's been so many events happening in the past couple of weeks that everything time-wise is mashing together. But we're also seeing the same thing happening right now, not necessarily in the same kind of uh, way, but definitely we're seeing Deutsche Bank and Charles Schwab CDS going up. So meaning that the market thinks that there are increased chance of credit events happening uh, that could happen with these entities. Now, the question here is whether it's justified or not. Maybe, maybe not. So clearly the market may be overly nervous with what's happened in the past couple of weeks in the US, but also Credit Suisse. Um, so it may be the market overreacting a little bit. Um, but at the same time, I don't think anyone can deny that the events in the past few weeks are definitely at least alarming to some level. And to say that there is not going to be any contagion whatsoever is probably a bit early. I would say that we'll probably have to wait at least a couple of years to know whether there is uh, some more dominoes to fall. The question is, though, are there issues that we're seeing? Are they con contained, more isolated, or like I said, are there potentially larger financial institutions that could be at risk here? And Deutsche Bank is definitely one of the big question marks because it's a GCIB bank, so a globally systemically important bank. Uh, but Charles Schwab- You just is nailed big... systemically. I hey. know, I know. It's a... Hey, for the people at yeah. home. After 15 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> systemically. Oh, absolutely man. crushed it. Yeah. And, you know, I can give my thoughts in another episode because there's a lot of moving part when it comes to the financial uh, system and the inner workings. I mean, I'm still learning. I'm listening. I've always been really fascinated with macro. macro. I love investing as well, but it's always something I'm learning on. And the more I learn about it, the more I think I don't know much about it. So that's kind of how complex it can be. Uh, but like I said, I mean... I'll probably finish on this is I tweeted something about the returns recently of the Canadian banks um, in the past since uh, basically just before the um, uh, SVP that infamous call that they did on, I think it was Wednesday, March 8th. And I said, oh, here are the returns for the Canadian banks. And I got a lot of people commenting on it because I basically just left an open question and said, is it a value play or a value trap? And what's interesting is, you know, I'm not, it's a relatively small sample, but it's, there's kind of two camps, right? So people are either saying it's a value play or a value trap that more and worse things are to come. And my view on that, I would just say, look, I don't know what is going to come, but at the same time, I'm just going to say that to think that Canada is insulated by anything that happens in the banking system in the US or in Europe, I think, you know, we may be to some degree, but we're not fully insulated. I think it's, um, you know, you're being, you're not being honest with yourself, or maybe there's a lack of understanding to think that, you know, if there's a major bank that fails in the US or, you know, in Europe, that there won't be any consequences in Canada. There may be, you know, lesser consequences, but um, it's very interconnected. And I I don't think we can say that, oh, Canadian banks will be resilient while, you know, the U.S. is in, is in a banking crisis, for example. There hasn't been a, I think it was 1920, last time Canada had a, had a bank fall apart. Anyways, people have been right to call out that how different our banking system and, and, may, and better it is in terms of safety. 
But I think that you're right to call that out, that it's it's head in the sand to just go, oh, it's never happened before. You know, look what happened in 08. We were fine. The banks were all on a huge discount. If you bought them, a, you know, the same multiples that U.S. banks were at, you've made a killing. All of those things are true. Um, and But it is head in the sand to think that there's no contagion, no risk of this happening. Anytime someone says there's no risk of something happening is usually what I know there's lots of risk of something yeah. happening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you just described something really important called the Dunning-Kruger effect, by the way. Okay. Which was when you're talking about... <laughs> yes, by the way, so the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, you talked about learning about macro, how you felt. The more you, the more you know, the more you realize that you don't know. And there's a cool graph here uh, on on the screen for you, the Dunning and Kruger effect. It's very classic. You know, you have confidence on the y inner, uh, the y uh, axis, and wisdom on the x axis. And so, when you know nothing, your confidence is super high, and that is called the peak of Mount Stupid, which I love. <laughs> As you learn more and more, you realize you have really low confidence because you know how much now you don't know. And that's called the valley of despair. And you keep learning. You have the slope of enlightenment all the way to the plateau of sustainability. Um, But this is a very common thing. It highlights uh, imposter syndrome as well. We're like, feel all confident. You go into some new field, new career choice. You think you know everything. And then you realize you found, you found yourself at the valley of despair. And that is totally normal. That's literally how human brains learn things. So, um, yeah, that's the, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect. I'm somewhere between the peak of Mount Stupid and the valley of despair. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> Probably slightly out of the valley of despair, I'd say, but uh, pretty far out from the, yeah, uh, maybe like halfway through the graph, I would say, yeah. There you go. All right, let's talk about dysfunctional dividends. Uh, this is a topic that just encompasses my thoughts so well, uh, and it was brought to me by Aswath Damadoran. Uh, it was a threat, and a podcast listener I'd love to give you a shout out here, but I can't remember who it was. You know who you are. Thank you for showing it to me. Uh, they sent me the thread and they're like, this is basically what you've been talking about on the podcast. And uh, it's this thread about capital allocation, mostly around buybacks, but also dividends. And it basically is saying dividends are a mechanism of returning cash to shareholders of the business. It is not free money. There's no free money loophole glitch. There's no wormhole into free money uh, freedom. This is cash from the business moving from their pockets into your pockets, from their balance sheet into your bank uh, or your brokerage. Therefore, the value of the business has gone down. Don't forget that. The The value of the business has gone down. The cash off their balance sheet. This is why... You just can't print free money by buying a stock for its ex-dividend date. I think every DIY investor is like, wait, at some point in their journey, they're like, wait, can't they just buy this for the ex-div and then sell it the next day? Yeah, you can, but the value of the stock will go down and net-net is zero. And so uh, you can't do that. If it was only so easy, Simone, uh, that's probably the peak of Mount Stupid. Uh, thinking that that's possible, you realize it's not, you end up in the valley of despair. 
So with that out of the way, dividends are very effective at completing that mechanism of returning cash to shareholders. Many companies have compounded value while paying a dividend and growing it for that matter and done exceptionally well. Typically, this is when the business is operating with prudent capital allocation. That's a functional dividend, okay? A dysfunctional dividend flips it on its head. Uh, go to the CanadianInvestorPodcast.com. We'll have this as a blog post called Dysfunctional Dividends under show notes. And there's a, a nice flow chart here. Now, functional dividends, basically dividend allocation is at the bottom of the decision tree. In a dysfunctional dividend, it is first. It is paid based on what's been paid in the past, the sector, uh, the sector policy. Uh, you know, all, all our competitors are paying a huge dividend. We should too. Um, you know, we've been paying a huge dividend historically. We we can't reduce it. We can't cut it. And so, you basically are lining up with short term incentives instead of long term incentives. How many times have we talked about this topic on the on the podcast, Simon? Algonquin Power comes yeah. to mind. Yeah, for sure. Intel. Uh, of just like dysfunctional Re- dividend. Yeah, Intel recently, of course. Intel. Uh, yeah, which by the way, Gordon Moore, rest in peace. Uh, side note. Yes, here. Yes, yes, rest in peace, yeah. Gordon Moore. The, mm-hmm. the if you have an entire law like Moore's Law behind your name, you had a badass life. Um, perfect examples: Intel, Algonquin, Canadian name, U.S. name. The amount of times we just look at their financials and the dividend policy with our arms just like up in the air, you know, what are the like guy with the arm up in the air emoji? And it just makes no sense. And I never want to own a stock where my 10,000 foot view from the business, I feel like I can do a better job than the person sitting in the CFO chair. That should never, ever be a thought I have. Uh, or at least I shouldn't uh, think that I uh, run the business with me. Even if I'm at the peak of Mount Stupid, I should still not feel that ever. And many times with these dysfunctional dividends, I, a regular guy, think this makes no sense. The CFO, the capital allocation, what is happening? This is a dysfunctional dividend. Um, in this flow chart, a functional dividend policy has dividends paid at the bottom. You have high return activities are allocated to first. Initiatives within the company are evaluated. The balance sheet is served and made sure it's rock solid. And then they say, okay, we're printing lots of cash. We can't allocate all of this money to high return activities. Let's distribute it to our shareholders who can then take it and have optionality with what they want to do with their capital. Um, And so many businesses with dysfunctional dividends get this wrong because they put the dividend decision at the very top. So let's use an example of, we pay ourselves dividend for this podcast. This podcast generates revenue from advertising, uh, and then we pay ourselves out as the owners uh, distributions. We've had several months where we've not paid ourselves the same dividend each month We've changed the distributions because we have big expenses. We have some big growth project we want to invest in. We want to do advertising ourselves. Or we have huge accounts payable coming in, essentially. That's us operating a functional dividend policy by 
by not just going, Simone, our shareholders will be mad if we don't distribute the same amount this month, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's a dysfunctional dividend for a small business. Yeah, and we'd rather, and just uh, speaking of our business, we'd rather pay, you know, a smaller one. And then if we find that we do have the free cash flow to, you know, do a special dividend, then we do. And that's, I think, is a prudent way of operating over, you know, you know, setting your expectations super high. And then something kind of happens that puts a wrench in there and you're too stubborn to one and rectify the flow. I'd rather work the other way around and i think for you know it's a, the same example for for dividend paying businesses they should also be thinking like that maybe err on more the side of caution and upside surprise versus the other way around costco perfect example of just like had so much excess free cash flow they could have raised the dividend aggressively but they didn't um and and every once in a while they've gone all right special div here you yeah. go. Here, let's move a bunch of cash off our balance sheet to our shareholders. Uh, they deserve it. They're awesome. They're the best. How often? Uh, and they do one like every couple yeah. of years. Period. Periodically. I mean, it's never like the exact amount of time in between, but because it's functional. Exactly. Um, they do it because they can afford it. And I think the issue too with some businesses is. I think it just shows how poor management is if they're not willing to cut the dividend when it should be cut. You know, we've seen it with Algonquit or Intel where it's like, okay, it probably should have been cut six months to a year before that. Yes. Um, to me, it just shows that management is afraid of making the hard decisions because they know if they cut the dividend, some shareholders will be unhappy, especially, you know, large shareholders that re- rely on the dividend and they may get grilled, but like, do you really want them as shareholders? It's probably a good question. If you're not willing to make the hard decision so the business is sustainable over the long term, I'm not quite sure you know, why you're managing these companies. That's the way I see it. Um, there's plenty of management that unfortunately have that train of thought where, you know, it feels like they do the move when it's too late. And then they, exactly. yeah, they basically they like kneecap themselves or whatever, whatever the saying is. Yeah. So here's the high level, a functional dividend policy from companies you own or, or, or evaluating looks at cash the business is generating and reinvests it as quickly and effectively they can in high hurdle rate activities, meaning activities they have evaluated and or know from previous operating experience that they're going to get a high return on on the capital. Reinvesting to compound the value of the business in in high expected return activities is, is number one. It's my job running my company, for example, to do this. When I'm evaluating growth channels, it is my job to have a hurdle rate and know what good looks like and invest it accordingly. Um, a, a dysfunctional dividend policy, on the other hand, everything flows down with remaining cash to reinvest in the business after the dividend's been paid. And that's the problem. It just flips the order. So, you know, that's, that's what this segment is about, is a dysfunctional dividend policy flips the order of how it should be, which is start with quality earnings, you go all the way down to free cash flow, and then you get this decision tree, and it's flipped on its head, 
uh, and it makes no sense. And it's never how the highest quality compounders act historically from my experience. Um, and the good thing is mature and or not even mature, highly profitable companies can do both. Um, but they don't get it twisted where they have, where they're being bad stewards of capital basically. Um, so that's, that's, that's dysfunctional dividends. Yeah. And I think that's why we hammer so much on the uh, payout ratio, especially when it comes to free cash flow. I think it's really important. Um, there's not a magic number for every businesses, but I would say what I tend to do as one of the first thing I'll check if I invest in a dividend payer is I'll check out that uh, payout ratio, but I'll compare it to some of its peers. And typically the companies I'll want to invest in are those who have it on the lower end versus the industry average. Because clearly, you know, if you're looking at a tech company, if a tech company is paying 75% of their free cash flow in the dividend, that's a big red flag right there for me. Because a tech company needs to be able to reinvest in the business because whatever they do, you know, Research and development will still have to play an important role. If it doesn't, over time, their leadership position, if they have one, will you know, will just they will just fall behind. And we've seen that with Intel. That's a that's a good example there. Um, but if you look at it, the industry average, and definitely, you know, if it's within there, especially on the lower end side, that usually means that they'll be able to keep paying the dividend and reinvest in the business. I mean, at the very base, that's an easy way to like at least eliminate some red flags right off the bat. Totally. And it's so it's why it's so good to have like a, a research tool like Stratosphere where you can literally see it visually. Like if you type in the payout ratio and see how it's trended over the last like 15, 20 years, and you see like it's gone to a, a, a unsustainable amount, it's probably because they have a dysfunctional dividend policy uh, that it's crept up like that. And, you know, maybe the business is more mature and sure they want to distribute more cash to shareholders. It's more nuanced to this conversation. Sure. Um, but it can be useful. Uh, you can make that decision, right? Like the payout ratio ballooned on Intel, like ballooned to a place that it should, it should not be, but they were very hesitant to cut it because of short-term incentives. Exactly. That's it. So sorry for those who own Intel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's been the, it's been on. The, okay. Yeah. Well, how about Algonquin power? I mean, yeah. geez, yeah. I've never understood the capital allocation decisions there uh, for two years now. I mean, I for utility, for a hot minute, and then I was like, "Wait, what is this?" You have to I did try well pretty, with it, actually, too. Yeah, you have to try pretty hard for a utility to <laughs> to mess it up like that. It feels like it's the perfect, um, for the most part, you know, business model to be able to pay a stable dividend as long as you're not too greedy and you manage your business well, and you know, and you don't try to you know, grow too quickly. Usually, you know, these companies can grow at a steady rate, you know, pay a good dividend, sustainable, and shouldn't encounter too much headwinds. But uh, clearly, they got a bit too ambitious, I think, when it comes to Algonquin. They wanted to grow too quickly. Let's talk about this uh, hot 
hot, hot fiery, take. spicy yeah. take. Yeah. So I know, I know, like uh, especially Bitcoin, it it's it's polarizing for a lot of people. A lot of people um, will be, you know, really bullish on it. Some people are very bearish, and I think there's uh, definitely a lot of people that you know may be open to it, but they're still not sure. But this one made um, <laughs> made the round, so you might have heard of it. So Balaji Sri. Nivasan. So I'm probably butchering the name, but um, he did a bet that Bitcoin would reach a million dollars in 90 days. His uh, Twitter account is at Balaji, B-A-L-A-J-I. Now, obviously, I own Bitcoin, have strong conviction in it, but I also have a bunch of different companies, stocks that I own, index funds. Um, and I know you may just hear the headline or you might see it. I think most of the mainstream media, the financial media have taken this uh, because it's, you know, headline grabbing one million in 90 days. So he did that bet following uh, all the bank turmoil that was happening that was on, I think, about like. Uh, March 16, if I remember correctly. So he's a couple of weeks in here. And it's easy to look at the headline and think, okay, this guy is completely crazy. Um, and I'll say what my thoughts are at the end here, because I just want to give, again, a more nuanced approach, because this guy, you know, he has a, a track record. He's not completely out there. So uh, Balalji, I'll just refer to him as his first name because it's easier to say. He's a venture capitalist investor. He's the former chief technology officer at Coinbase and was a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. So he's not like a nobody. Um, he also tweeted something very interesting on January 30th, 2020. So he said that... And let's recall here that January 30th, 2020, there was just a handful of confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the U.S. at the time. So no one was thinking that we would start seeing massive lockdowns at what we've seen in the past three years. Now, here's a sweet word for word going viral. What if the coronavirus is the pandemic that public health people have been warning for years? It would accelerate many pre-existing trends. Border closures, nationalism, social isolation, preppers, remote work, face masks, distrust in governments. What is preppers? I'm not sure. Yeah. Just going to say it's the doomsday preppers. Oh yeah, I guess so. Yeah, no, that's is that what uh, it is. I would, I would. I, assume I just, so. a, I just a guess. I knew the uh, uh, the six others, but no, I think <laughs> you, that's you went over that one. I'm like, what is a prepper? Yeah. Uh, okay, interesting. Yeah, and January 30th, 2020. So I think it's good to just remember what we were kind of going through at the time. Yes, we know there was a coronavirus, COVID-19, but, you know, our way of life hadn't changed at that point. The lockdowns didn't start until mid-March. And obviously, you know, there was just a handful of cases in North America that were confirmed. There was probably more in reality, but, you know, a lot of people would have seen this tweet and think he was absolutely crazy. And now we know three years later that most of this stuff has actually come true. So that's why he's gotten a lot of credibility because he made this prediction. It kind of reminds me of Michael Burry as well with his predictions. And, you know, people give him a lot of credit just based on what he predicted would happen with the U.S. um, housing market. Now, 
what Biology is saying is that most banks are currently insolvent and governments will have to step in with massive amounts of fiat, which will lead to hyperinflation. Now, fiat, for those not familiar with the word, it's essentially just, you know, money as we know it. So Canadian dollar, US dollar, whichever currency you're looking at, fiat just means that it's not backed by anything other than the government. So it's not a uh, gold-backed system, for example, like we used to have, uh, you know, many, many, many decades ago. Now, the bet that Balaji will put is that he will put 1 million USD and uh, there's this fellow called James on Twitter would put one Bitcoin with a custodian and the term of the bet is 90 days. It's a bit weird how they're arranging it, but essentially the bet is that he's betting that it will reach a million dollars USD in 90 days. To keep it simple, we'll just say it's that. Now, to put additional context here, if Bitcoin reaches a million dollars, it would be it would have a market cap of around 19 to 20 trillion dollars. That's double the market cap of gold and just shy of the US GDP. So it's quite a bit of money and yeah <laughs> to go to a million 90 days is such a ridiculous like this is the problem with hot takes right it's yeah. like it, it draws so much attention and only upside if he comes even remotely close and there's no downside because you have this like outrageous thing that probably not going to happen anyways this is the uh, incentive dichotomy issue with hot takes. And we've talked about this when we do our bold predictions for the year. It's like, yeah, there's no, there's no incentive for me to not be extremely, extremely bold. Cause I, I look like a hero from right. And if I'm wrong, it's a eh, bold thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bold day. It's just, yeah, it was just a, it was just a joke, you know, like, don't worry guys. I'm just joking. Yeah. And I don't know really what his intentions here are with that. Is he really, you know, looking to just get publicity? Is he being serious? I think he's, he's from what I've seen, he looks like he's serious on it, but who knows his true intentions. But if Bitcoin reaches a million in 90 days, um, the world is going to have some big problems. I'm not saying Bitcoin to a million at some point is not possible. I mean, I'm very bullish on Bitcoin, but 90 days would essentially mean that the banking system is collapsing and people are fleeing towards any kind of uncorrelated, you know, asset to our fiat money system, whether it's gold, whether it's Bitcoin, whether it's, you know, hard assets, other commodities, real estate, whatever it is, you know, it would see people flee a lot towards those assets. And I have a few more thoughts here. First, you know, does he really believe this or is he actually using this to get mainstream awareness to Bitcoin? Because, of course, mainstream media will pick this up. You know, it is... And he probably owns a shit ton of it, and he's probably exactly. going to profit off this. Yeah, yeah. so he, he says that I think he has like 99% of his net worth into Bitcoin. Whether that's true or not, I guess no one really knows. But, you know, it is a polarizing statement. So whether you hate Bitcoin, you're going to be talking about it. Whether you like Bitcoin, you're going to be talking about it. So from that standpoint, it is interesting. Um, is he using this to create awareness with what's happening with our financial system right now? Like that bank term funding program, the new Fed program that they started just after the fall of SVB, which allowed banks to get loans at par value on their treasuries, even if the market value is way below that. Essentially, the Fed would lend them money one for one. 
And essentially, a lot of people are also saying that, you know, they're saying it's only a specific amount of money, but it's likely to just increase. And a lot of people don't think it'll end after a year. We'll have to see. Is he just fear mongering and posting this uh, to get clicks or views on Twitters um, or has ulterior, ulterior motives that we don't know? So there's a lot of questions here. And the last thing I'll say is obviously Bitcoin I'm sure people have seen it. There's been headlines on it. So it's performed pretty well since March 8th, since it all started with SGB. It's up 25%, whereas the NASDAQ is up 4.35%. Reason I'm using NASDAQ is Bitcoin has been pretty correlated with the NASDAQ in the past year or so. And it's interesting to see a bit of a decoupling right there. I don't make predictions uh, for the price of Bitcoin. I mean, I've done a few times or once on uh, our bold predictions, but that was just throwing numbers there <laughs> just for fun. Uh, like you said, it was just bold prediction. I personally think obviously it could go massively down or up. I don't know what it's going to do. Maybe some people know, but I'm not, you know, smart enough to be able to predict that. And maybe I'm smart enough to not try and predict that. Uh, but I do like to have nuanced views. And the way I see it in terms of Bitcoin, that's just my view, is that it's just insurance against the financial system. It's something that has a fixed supply, then has a protocol that is stable, unlike, you know, what we've seen with central banks where liquidity can increase, decrease, interest rates are constantly changing, money supply as well. And I'm not even talking here about the euro dollar, which something I can talk about in another episode. For those not familiar with the euro dollar, it's essentially an offshore US dollar uh, trading mechanism that's kind of out of the control of the Fed. Um, so that is quite complex, but I've been reading more and more on that. And it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating how it started. It started back more in the kind of early, I think the 1950s, where Soviet banks were looking to get access to you. U.S. dollars and finding a way to access that without having to go through the U.S. Yeah, the euro dollar is a funny name for just yeah. <laughs> dollars outside of the U.S. U.S. dollars, <laughs> too. Yeah, yeah. So people yeah, may... U.S. dollars yeah. outside of the U.S., are euro dollars a term you'll see all the time it sounds way more fancy than it really is <laughs> yeah i it mean u.s dollars outside of the u.s it's very it's very complex and the one thing about the euro dollar market it tends to be quite good at predicting where the markets will go um because yeah it's not tied to really the, the Fed doesn't really have influence on that market. So it's, um, anyways, I can do an episode on that. Yeah, it's uh, their currency that yeah. like, has its own yeah. life of its own outside of their country. Yeah, exactly. So, um, no, uh, that's just my take here. I think it's obviously it's going to grab headlines. It is, uh, I don't know, maybe it'll be the title of this episode and uh, I'll get people worked up. We'll see. But, uh, Bitcoin to one million. Yeah. Oh, God, um, there's going to be the, yeah. the angry, but whatever, uh, I think, the angry people in your DMs in no time. You know that, yeah. right? Yeah, but I think, you know, I you know me enough and listeners I've been listening for a while you know I may be bullish on Bitcoin but I like to look at things and have a more you know I want to look at both sides and just not try to make my mind right away I like to ask questions and definitely have a more nuanced approach because usually you know the truth is usually somewhere in between yeah good point that's a good point dude it's so many <laughs> oh man that's just like 
I'm picturing society with no issues if everyone just had, if everyone could say that statement right there. One, the ability to change your mind when presented new facts. And two, to not be set in your ways without even actually thinking about it or asking questions or having human curiosity. It's also a good way to make a lot of money in life is to not, is, is to not shut down everything that comes across your plate. Like I would, here's a like recent example. So this is kind of tangentially related because it's, you know, cryptocurrency mm. and, and yeah. web three in when everyone was telling me Web three is going to replace Web two, and and I like Bic, I understand the purpose of Bitcoin. You try to send money cross border, and the fees is ridiculous. The like, dude, tell people this stuff's not useful in a country that has seventy percent. Like, tell tell that to people in Turkey that this isn't a useful technology, and they'll tell you, oh yeah, well the value of my deposits have gone down seventy percent this year. Um, and so that's another tangent. When people told me crypto, Web3, I was like, you guys are just making new problems to solve without them actually existing. This is such a load of shite. I'm not buying a cartoon for $500,000 NFTs. It's just like, you know, people are like, oh, it's going to revolutionize home ownership. You're going to have this deed that says you own it. I'm like, yeah, I have one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I don't need I don't need it to be on a blockchain to sell, like there's no problem. It doesn't exist. The problem doesn't exist. And then so I'm I'm naturally healthily skeptical about this stuff. And now, you know, m- my initial response to chat GPT and AI and you know the bubble that's forming there is is so skeptical right out of the gate because if you've been an investor in the last 3 years, you you've you've been born to be skeptical on this new hype tech, right? We're messing around with it now and doing things that are unbelievable, unbelievable what we are accomplishing with artificial intelligence in our data set, training the algorithm, spitting out things. People are going to be able to soon like use a chat interface and ask Stratosphere how uh, Constellation Software did on their last quarter and give me a summary. That is going to be possible with what we're doing right now. And it could make me very rich. You know what I mean? Like people who shut themselves down to to new and I, uh, ideas, like just sell uh, your to... API to PayPal. Yeah, <laughs> I'll sell my <laughs> API to PayPal. Yeah, the customer service uh, API. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. All right, that's a that's a side tangent. Um, couple thoughts here about the the Bitcoin thing with hyperinflation that he's saying is is possible and we've clearly seen inflation be double digits uh if you the real number i think it was hit the peak of around like 12 percent ish year over year that number is still persisting in the uk and europe because if you have inflation on the u.s dollar it's not about what happens in in the u.s it's outside of it that is like hyperinflation um even with just eight percent usd right like the fallout is not just the currency of usd no no i mean it's uh yeah the implications are really wide ranging and that's what we're seeing especially countries that are you know not on 
as favorable terms with the U.S., they're the ones that are being the most impacted. Whether that's right or not, I mean, you know, I don't want to get into politics of things, but clearly um, the Fed offers what they call swap lines with central banks that are uh, friendlier, uh, let's say, friendlier countries, including friendlier. including Canada. And that's just a way for these banks to have easier liquidity to the U.S. dollar. Uh, but again, you know, aside from that, if you have, you know, whatever is happening in the U.S., we've seen it in Canada, right? Especially when you look at the currency, if it weakens versus the U.S. dollar, it can create some problems because a lot of the trade is done in U.S. dollar. So you can kind of compound what's happening there. And you said in Europe, I think they're still seeing double-digit inflation. So, yeah. Yeah, they are, for sure. Even like the UK. Yeah. Um, I think the, the government reported numbers 10, 10%. Something like that, And yeah. the, mm. the true inflation number, I think, is high, a lot higher. Uh, all right. Alcohol. Is alcohol on the way down, Simone? A question that uh, keeps getting being thrown around with new trends. You know, it, it's so funny because you're like, anecdotally, I don't think so. And you, know, you you walk around, you go to a concert, and I was like, wow, you know, the Budweiser family is still doing quite well. Um, and so anecdotally, you're going to be like, no, people are drinking alcohol left, right, and center. The bars are full. And that is true. But the stats that I've been referring to on the podcast have been that particularly Canadians and globally, younger people are less interested in drinking. BBC reports Canadians appear to be losing their taste for alcohol. According to findings, uh, beer and wine is at a historic low of sales. Um, and, and there was like a 2% sales bump, but inflate that's inflation. Uh, actual volumes were at historic lows, which is the more important KPI to, to follow is volumes, not dollar. Um, so from tw- 2021 to 22, volume of beer per person in Canada slumped drastically. The volume of wine slid by its largest margin since 1949. Okay, interesting. And so, so but that's beer and wine, right? Like I'm in before the that's only beer and wine. And there's no surprise because everyone's drinking these hard seltzers, uh, you know, the low carb, the white claws, the cottage springs. Um, and, and these are alcoholic drinks that are not in the beer or wine category as far as I know. And they have exploded in the last decade or so. There, there'd be more in the, I guess, spirits. I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. Yeah, I don't know what they are classified at. Because wine and spirits is usually classified together, you know? like Yeah. Anyways, let's let's just say beer and wine we know for sure have slid. Okay, but let's let let's look at seltzers and that, you know, holistically. Stats Canada says alcohol as a category slid for the first time in a decade by 1.2% and the wine category decreased by 4%. Here's from Global News, a report from Berenberg Research shows that Gen Z so that's the like, I guess, people who are younger than 25 today to like, I don't know, maybe let's say. Producer Mel. You're, you're Producer Gen Mel. Z. Producer yeah. Mel, you're a Gen Z, right? Nod? Yeah, yeah it's not, Gen okay. Z. So that's like, a, I don't know, like maybe like 12-year-olds to 24-year-olds today. 
Yeah, it's usually just, like a little more than a decade. I really, yeah. I mean, I think depending where you look at the the grouping, it changes slightly differently. It's just yeah, yeah, yeah. depending on which Wikipedia article you yeah. pull up, uh, and and it it is arbitrary. But anyways, the 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 young people, the high schoolers, and the university students today for sure are the Gen Zs. And I'm sure if you go to any university campus, they're still drinking as much as ever. But statistically. They are saying that they drink 20% less per capita than millennials, which I am, you are, uh, you're an older millennial, I'm a younger millennial when it comes to alcohol consumption. And not to be outdone, it says here, the report also shows millennials are drinking less than Gen X and baby boomers. Okay, interesting. A report from Australia's University of New South Wales backs up the trend worldwide, finding 44% of those ages 18 to 24. So those are the, that's the, the older Gen Zs are drinking less than older generations. Clinical psychologist Dr. Dominique Morenzo specializes in this. Says people have become more health conscious and shifted their habitats. Or not habitats. <laughs> shifted their, their habitats. Their shifted habits, their yeah. habits. <laughs> has shifted their habitats. Now they live in tree houses now. Now they've shifted their habits to other substances. Interesting. I Weed, know which one. Shrooms, I'm assuming. Yeah. Shrooms. I mean, I've shrooms. seen there's dispensary all over the place now for, for mushrooms. Yeah, for the yeah. shrooms. Yeah. I've yeah. seen them in Toronto I've seen now. That. Yeah. Dude, Gen Z's love their shrooms. Producer Mel, raise, yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, she didn't actually <laughs> no, no, nod, she did but not, anyways. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, so, interesting that uh, this is uh, the case. Now, obviously, people are still drinking. It's ingrained in the culture. But I'm very curious to see where this, this trend goes. Does it does it plateau uh, 50 years down the road? Does this look different? Does it become like the smoking cigarettes of 2079? You know? I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll see. But it's something to keep an eye on. I, I Of course, I still like... Uh, my old uh, whiskey and, and uh, paper planes and Manhattan's. I love that stuff. So I'm going to drink it. Yeah. I mean, I like to drink once in a while. I mean, I think too, we're seeing it with marijuana and cannabis, like where there has to, there's a shift that takes time, even though it was delegalized. I think 2018 now. Uh, yeah, it was 2018, right? I think October 2018 yeah, that was October legalized. October 2018, yeah. Yeah, and it was decriminalized years before that. And it's still, I've noticed, depending on the age group, um, you know, the older the age group, even though it's legal, there's still a bit of a negative perception about cannabis. I'm not, I'm generalizing here. I know some people are more open to it than others. And uh, let's yeah. say Gen, Gen X or baby boomers. But I've noticed in my life that there's still a bit of a negative perception whereas they'll have a very positive perception or not as negative of alcohol and i think that's just the fact that you've grown up with one substance being legal and the other one not being legal until recently Um, and i think personally that's what we're seeing if you give it 25 30 years as there's more options for people to uh you know consume substances 
you know, it won't be that alcohol is the predominant substance that's legal. There's going to be a variety of options. And that will clearly, you know, if you're taking mushrooms, I'm going to say that you're probably not having, uh, you know, 10 beers. So you're probably sticking <laughs> to the mushrooms. Uh, maybe. Maybe, uh, maybe. But uh, I feel, you know, <laughs> may not have a good time. I, that sounds like a fun Saturday. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I think you, no, you're you know right, what I'm you're saying. Right. Like, op- yeah. it's just mm-hmm. options, right? Like, yeah, consumer, the consumer has more legal options. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or at and least I, more, de- more decriminalized options. Mm-hmm. It, didn't they decriminalize cocaine in British Columbia like a couple of weeks ago? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to spit out wrong, wrong facts. We'll, we'll even look it up for another time. But that was all over the news and what you're getting at is there's more options for the consumer that, you know, it's not just alcohol and that but it's, 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 it's competition for a market is what it yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. It just, but also it takes over time. It takes time for habits to change. And I think that's the other thing. And we're seeing like, habitats to change. Exactly. And we're seeing the younger crowd that kind of gr- have grown up, you know, if you're, you're, 18 you know essentially you know probably ever since it's been on your radar these substances marijuana has been legal and decriminalized so it's much more normal to consider that on par with alcohol for example yeah it's going to be less taboo exactly Mm -hmm. in your life like in terms of the people you know and and how you grow up because you know people born since 2018 october 2018 it's That's been all legal their entire lifetime. I mean, they're yeah. just babies right now, but mm-hmm. well, they're, yeah. you know, in grade one, maybe. No, <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's a true. big difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, you know, you uh, people can Google on YouTube some of the like hilarious videos, especially in the States. They were aggressive on that where, you know, you would smoke a joint and basically become a serial killer. So, <laughs> stuff like that from the like 1960s and 1970s you know people see that over and over and obviously could have the reality is it's like you're the least likely to do anything (laughs) how late is the mcdonald's drive-thru open until (laughs) oh that's too funny uh no i i agree there's like more competition and it's going to change kind of like what's normal i mean think of it doesn't take it takes a long time but not that long for these things to change. Like, you know, in, in basically my parents' lifetime, smoking's become completely normal to smoking cigarettes. Like, why? You know, it's bad for you. It's gross. It makes you smell bad. It's a waste of money. It's, you know, you're never going to get laid. You know, like, it's all this like stuff that goes into the culture of like, connotation being bad and maybe that happens to alcohol i don't know i i doubt it but we'll see i guess we'll, we'll just we'll, see. we'll be here to report the news Ten every, years later. Every, let's see every how Monday this is going. Thursday. yeah yeah thanks so much for listening to the canadian investor podcast folks we really appreciate you we are here mondays and thursdays as i alluded to this is our uh, this is our time to talk frameworks, and this is the good content that's on the Canadian Investor Podcast dot com. So all the stats that I was just rifling off on uh, on uh, from PBS and BBC and Global News on alcohol consumption, for example, it's all there. You can read it yourself. So go ahead and check that out. If you have not given the show a five star rating, we have had an absolute 
onslaught of five-star wonderful reviews here, uh, primarily from Spotify. You hit that five-star button, hit hit the follow button, and then on Apple Podcasts, you hit subscribe, and you hit the five-star button. And if you have 13 seconds to write a little review, we've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of research and work for this podcast. Now, this is episode 261. So we've put in all that effort. The podcast is free. All we ask is 13 seconds of your time. You write a little review, say say what you like about the show, what you'd like to see more of, hit that five-star button, and uh, you've, you've paid for 261 episodes of content with uh, 13 seconds of your life. So we appreciate it if you do that on uh, Apple Podcasts. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simon may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.